0: Hello and welcome to episode 14 of The Investor's Guide to China. I'm Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International.
1: And I'm Marty Dropkin, Head of Asian Fixed Income and Hong Kong Investments.
0: Marty, the phrase common prosperity has certainly been getting a lot of airtime recently, both domestically in China, so we're hearing a lot of senior government officials refer to this policy, as well as around the world. In fact, around the world, investors have come to know this campaign through a series of tighter regulations across a number of industries within China. But what does it really mean for companies and investors, or even when we look at the broader economy?
1: In this podcast, we'll be speaking to Fidelity's portfolio managers and analysts, as well as special guests, to get an on-the-ground perspective from China on how companies in each of the three key sectors are adjusting. Well, Catherine, first I think we could use a bit of background. So Common Prosperity, or Gongtong Fuyu, aims to narrow the wealth gap after several decades of rapid economic growth in China that allowed many people to get rich first. The campaign seems to rein in what the leadership describes as the disorderly expansion of capital, by introducing regulatory traffic lights to stop things like monopolies, price gouging, or unfair competition outright. The stated goals of common prosperity are focused on economic growth, but then dividing that growth more equitably. For example, by making sure small and medium-sized enterprises can stay competitive, and especially that they can continue to create new jobs.
0: Marty, job creation is certainly very high up on the government's agenda at the moment. And in fact, this initiative that you've explained, we really saw it accelerate last year through waves of regulatory tightening. And a lot of this tightening has targeted three key areas, that being healthcare, education and housing, commonly referred to in China as the Three Mountains. Now, they're known as the Three Mountains because they represent big and rising burdens to the cost of living for many households. Over the past year or so, companies operating in these sectors have seen significant market volatility and dare I say, quite negative sentiment when it comes to how investors have viewed them. So how are they responding and adapting to the new operating environment? What's working and what isn't? And what strategic or tactical adjustments are investors making in response? Marty, which of these three mountains shall we tackle first?
1: Well, Catherine, let's start with healthcare. I recently had a chance to catch up with David Hoidl, the CEO of Delta Health, a hospital operator in Shanghai specializing in cardiovascular care. And full disclosure, Delta Health is backed by Fidelity's affiliated company, Eight Roads. Hi, David. I know you don't run a COVID hospital, but could you start by just giving me a quick snapshot of what it's been like running a hospital in Shanghai over the past few very challenging months?
2: Uh, Well, as you say, uh, we're not a COVID hospital, but I would say the operative word uh, has been challenging, uh, without a doubt. Uh, Several things I would touch on. Uh, Certainly, first, when the outbreak and the lockdown started to go into place, uh, the primary concern was around supply chain issues. uh, But we've been uh, very successful at being able to maintain uh, medications, consumables, uh, even food supply, which has been a challenge for a lot of people. Probably the most significant uh, has been uh, related to staffing. As you'd imagine, with a lot of communities, actually the entire city in lockdown, we started to house a lot of our staff at the hospital, some of whom we've housed in the hospital for weeks. Some of them have been there for a couple months. But all in all, we've done quite well.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about Delta Health? What's unique about it, and how does it fit into the broader healthcare system in China?
2: Absolutely. Uh, We've been operating in Shanghai for going on almost six years. We're actually licensed as a general hospital with a cardiovascular center of excellence, which is our primary focus. And so we provide primary care services to the immediate community. Uh, whether that's things like general practice, pediatrics, ENT, dermatology. But again, our real focus has been cardiovascular disease. And we've been seeing those patients from all over China. In terms of the broader healthcare system, the private hospitals are still a relatively small part of the healthcare market. And most of them provide again, what you would know as primary care or secondary care, whereas we provide what's referred to as tertiary care.
1: And as a private hospital trying to balance the quality and affordability of health
2: care, what are some of the other
1: challenges you face?
2: I would say one of them has been uh, kind of the, the general public's perception of private health care, Of course, China has been dominated by the public system forever, essentially. Although the private industry is growing, we do encounter uh, that, again, it's a perception issue that we've been doing a lot of education around, that private hospitals are expensive. But I think we're also benefiting from, as I'm sure you know, um, commercial insurance is growing in China the rising middle class. And they're very much looking for a different, not just quality of healthcare, but experience in their healthcare.
1: So, David, last question. Why is there a need for a heart-focused hospital? And I guess, for instance, is is heart disease on the rise in China?
2: Yeah, it certainly is. In fact, um, I would say some of the visionaries of Delta of what is a very high incidence of cardiovascular disease in China. And the belief is, by a lot of experts, that with the aging of the population, the need will grow even more. You know, I would say that it was the result of certainly a large incidence, a large demand for these services, and also we were able to recruit some of the leading professors, not just in China, uh, but internationally, whether it's in cardiac surgery, cardiology. And I think they were also looking for a different model of care and a different way of practicing.
1: David, I just want to thank you for your time today and uh, really appreciate you joining the podcast. My pleasure.
0: To talk more about this, we're joined by Yuanlin Lin an equity analyst and portfolio manager based with us in Hong Kong. And she covers China's ever-evolving and fascinating healthcare sector and has done so for over a decade. Some of the most fascinating conversations I've had over the years is with Yuan Lin. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you for having me.
1: So Yuan Lin, it's great to see you. I know you've been in a lot of company meetings recently and with healthcare being such a key focus for policymakers, could you start our conversation today by talking about what's happening in the sector in terms of regulatory reforms.
3: I mean, healthcare care definitely is a focus. And then we've seen a lot of reforms. As Catherine mentioned, it is one of the three big mountains. And then we hear anecdotes about, you know, a family gets back to poverty because a family member unfortunately gets ill. So, you know, under the uh, big trend of common prosperity and eliminating poverty in China, healthcare is definitely an important sector to be addressed. And then since uh, 2018, you probably hear a lot about the group purchase organization, which we, um, we call it GPO as well. So this is basically a, a, a method for uh, the government to lower the price for uh, drugs and also medical devices.
1: So the focus really has been recently on GPOs, or as, as you said, group purchasing organizations. Could you give us a little bit more detail on that and how it comes to life?
3: Sure. Yeah, so GPO is basically on the generic drugs. So if we look back in China, the market uh, is uh, very much generic drug centric before. In China, around 60% of the pharmaceutical market is dominated by generic drugs. And then before GPO was introduced, uh, there uh, the generic drugs even go off patent, uh, they still can charge at a very high price, which means the insurance funds need to pay a very pricey, uh, generic drugs, but don't have room to compensate, to reimburse for the innovative drugs. And then this is why if people get ill and then they want to uh, get a better treatment, they still need to pay out of pocket. And all of this has been changed from 2018 when China introduced the uh, uh, GPO.
0: I remember um... You tell me about this movie called Dying to Survive, and it's, in fact, so one of my favorite movies, just about this very point regarding the financial burden on people as well as this access to quality care. So in this movie, for example, it was treatment, a cancer treatment. So outside of the movie world, what data points really reflect the progress in this area?
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, insurance coverage has al- always been centric for the government. So it it dated way back to 2005 when the focus back then was to improve the insurance coverage ratio. So the population that under public insurance as a percentage went from 25% back in 2005 to nearly 100% in 2013. And then GPO came came in and then to help to tackle the problem of uh, insurance funds paying majority on generic drugs, but not on innovative drugs. With GPO, um, insurance funds can pay less on generic drugs and then focus more on innovative drugs. And then, so if we look at the out-of-pocket payment from household as a percentage of total healthcare expenditure, This number has been reduced steadily from around 60% back in 2000 to only 27.7% in 2020.
1: That's that's fascinating, Anlin. And I guess let's talk about the companies you cover a little bit. How are they responding? Because you've just really talked about an environment that's changed dramatically over the last 10 or 20 years. How are those companies responding and how are they adapting to the challenges that the industry is facing?
3: Yeah, I I see a lot of companies under my coverage, they are transforming. So as I mentioned, China used to be a generic drug dominated market. So, you know, these companies used to make generic drugs only. But then with all this transformation introduced by GPO and then various other reforms, these companies are moving to transform themselves to invest in more innovative drugs. So they are bringing in talents and then investing heavily in R&D and then transform themselves into innovation-driven company.
0: So, you know, if we look at it then, Yuan Lin, whilst a lot of investors think that the focus on common prosperity is negative, on the other side of the coin, we've seen a lot of positive reforms, especially promoting innovation. So in that regard, you reckon innovative
3: companies have been performing better than the generic ones? That's very interesting that uh, um, when we see the market volatility started around July last year, with the common prosperity as as a trigger for that, I have to say, uh, we see sell off is uh, is kind of like universal, uh, regardless of, uh, you know, if these companies are doing generic drugs or innovative drugs. So this is quite interesting because, you know, the fear about, you know, how these companies can maintain profitability and then the fear about, you know, all the news flows about GPO just a dampen uh, investor sentiment towards the sector. And I see this uh, as a very interesting opportunities.
0: So where would you say reforms are likely to go over the near and midterm? I mean, should we be concerned as investors in terms of further tightening measures, so as to speak?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, like for generic drugs, right? So I think GPO will be a normal practice. And then this has been announced at uh, various policy meetings. But then for innovative drugs and then for innovative medical devices, we see that the government is still uh, promoting uh, uh, these areas. And then um, there are different documents like Fourteenth Five Year Plan on you know pharmaceutical industries, biotech industries. They are all promoting for the innovation, and then promoting for private capitals to go into these um, sectors, and then also you know like promoting more talents um, to go into these sectors. So I think we cannot look at the regulation on healthcare as just one, because there will be different implications to different types of companies.
4: Hello. A quick message. We love making these podcasts, and we know you're part of a loyal audience that keeps coming back to listen to them. But podcast audience statistics are a blunt tool. There's only so much the numbers can tell us about what we're already doing and what we might do differently. We've got exciting ideas for some new features and even some new shows, but we want to make sure that we're giving you what you want – Something useful, unique, and unforgettable. Maybe there's someone else you'd like to hear from at Fidelity, or beyond, or something else you'd like to hear more about. Maybe you've got your own burning questions to ask our guests. Now, our listenership is not in the millions, far from it. But you're an important, intelligent, and influential bunch, so it's very likely that your feedback will make a difference. And on top of that, we'll enter you into a prize draw for £250 in Amazon vouchers, or we'll make an equivalent donation to a charity of your choice. What's not to like? We've made it easy for you. All you have to do is click on the link we've put in the podcast description, and that'll take you to a short survey. Or you can go directly to fidelityinternational.com forward slash survey. And the survey and prize draw close on September the 10th. We're really, really keen to hear from you and to learn more about what makes you tick. So please do tell us. Go to the survey link in the description on your podcast app or visit fidelityinternational.com forward slash survey. Can't wait to hear from you.
0: From healthcare, let's move on to education, the second of our three mountains. Sweeping new regulations last summer significantly altered the investment thesis regarding the country's after-school tutoring sector. The move is intended to make sure young people are focused on China's core academic curriculum. But policymakers didn't stop there. The video game industry was subsequently overhauled, and in fact, we saw hard limits on the number of hours kids can play games during the week.
1: Well, you know, Catherine, and what was so fascinating about the way these events came about was how quickly things changed and how quickly the markets reacted to this series of announcement and adjustments that came out of the regulator. So it, it was definitely an interesting time.
0: To find out more, I spoke with Tina Tian, a Hong Kong-based equity portfolio manager who covers China's online gaming market. Tina, what are we looking at here?
5: This is a game called Honor of Kings, which is developed by Tencent and has become one of the most popular games in the world. Since its launch in late 2015, we've had more than 270 million downloads. And in 2021 alone, the total grossing of the game was around US dollars. And it's actually a very interesting game. So two teams will fight against each other, trying to destroy the core building of the opponent, and you win. This is one of the examples of many popular games that um, you can see in China. And just in general, the regulators have become increasingly concerned about kids spending too much time on, on games instead of on study.
0: So much so, right, Tina, that specific measures have been put in place by the regulator to rein in this excessive video gaming amongst minors. Yeah,
5: so a few key areas that the regulators are really looking at, right, first of all is appropriate content. So basically the game developers are encouraged to, to develop better content, especially for kids. And as the regulators ask the game developers to, to refine, develop, and, and improve the content, they actually stopped or suspended the new game approvals for about eight months last year, up until April this year. Uh, at the same time, the regulators are really trying to reduce the time spent by kids. So now there are very stringent uh, restrictions uh, put in place. For a child in China, um, he or she can only play three hours of video games every week, um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and maybe one hour every day during the public holidays. So (laughs) you can see (laughs) it's, uh, it's quite stringent.
0: Okay, so taking this into consideration, paint a picture for us of what the games were like before these regulatory changes and and how they look now. So
5: our observation has been, you know, the, the game developers have
0: really uh, introduced a lot more
5: educational content such that the kids can, you know, they can still play to learn, right? It's it's not about just kind of silly fighting, it's, it's about coding and programming mm-hmm. And there's a lot more elements of traditional culture, which is obviously, you know, something that Chinese regulators have been really hoping to promote.
0: And how do you see the companies adapting themselves in response to these new measures? And do you think, you know, medium-long-term it will actually work?
5: I think, uh, you know, the, the the game companies have really worked hard to adapt to all these changes. You know, the few things that we've mentioned, one is obviously content itself make it more uh, appropriate for, for kids. Um, and second thing is, a lot of them actually have launched a so-called underaged mode, which is basically a setup you know, that can be activated by parents when kids start playing games and, or, or watch any online video content, right? So, so under that mode, a lot of things are being restricted. For example, tipping or broadcasting. And also there are time limit, and there are also mandatory breaks put in place. Um, such that when kids are in that mode, they are, you know, their time time spenders is being being well managed and well controlled, and the content is also kind of curated. And of, obviously, as, as I just mentioned, because of the restrictions on the the time spent by minor, um, the underaged players, all the game companies have put in place real name registration system. So kids, you, you need to have to use your ID. You know. Uh, such that the system can recognize uh, who you are and how much time you are supposed to spend on my games, so all these systems are, are put in place uh, to really to really meet the regulatory requirement and concerns.
0: So, in your opinion, then is it still an attractive area of opportunity from an investment perspective?
5: I, I think so. So, so I think you know the most important thing is what. The game companies have done really effectively address the concerns of regulators. So, you know, with a a short period of time of um, new game approval suspension, we're we're seeing the the approval process uh, resume and come back. So things are back to normal, right? And secondly, if if, if you look at the actual impact on the business itself, it's actually pretty small. So the fourth quarter of 2021 um, was actually the first full quarter that we are seeing impact from the the minor protection measures. Obviously, you know, time spent by miners have been down by like 80%. The grossing, i.e. the game revenue spent by miners, are down as well because of, you know, naturally it just come down together with the time spent by, you know, 70, 80%. But still that, that contribution is only low single digit. For most game companies, so the impact is, is manageable, and and really, you know, the, the the regulators are not trying to kill the industry for everybody. is is really to 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 avoid or reduce the distraction for for kids and protect the kids. So as far as that concern is taken care of, the industry can move on.
0: Tina, thanks so much for spending time with me today.
5: Thank you, Catherine, for having me.
1: Well, Catherine, one thing I was really surprised about is how Tina described just how big the video gaming sector is and some of the creative ways that the developers are adapting to the new regulations.
0: You know, Marty, it's not just the gaming industry that we've seen companies adapt. And, and I've got to say the pace of, of adapting as well has been quite phenomenal. I mean, Yunlin, would you agree in terms of reforms come
3: out and how the companies in, in your sector managed. Yes, definitely. I think the pace that, uh, you know, like uh, my coverage companies adapt is also very quickly. As I mentioned, you know, a lot of generic drug companies are transforming into innovative drug companies. And then on top of that, we are also seeing a wave of, you know, startup companies, and then, you know, like uh, established by returnees, well-known uh, scientists or you know, like industry veterans who have uh, vast experience in pharmaceutical industries overseas, but then come back to China and then start up their business.
1: The innovation is really, really the key point there. I think it's, it's fascinating to kind of see how it's showing up in many different sectors. We're also joined now by Hong Kong-based senior credit analyst and portfolio manager Ming Gong to navigate our third and final mountain, housing, Ming. You focus on China property from a fixed income perspective, and it wasn't so long ago that you and Catherine were talking about the sector on this very podcast, and the sector's now lost more than half of its value over the last year with the flow of news continuing to be negative. I think we've hit an inflection point, maybe. What do you think?
6: Yes, Marty. Um, I think last year we saw a policy-induced deleveraging process that triggered uh, a lot of stress in the sector, but at the beginning of this year, uh, you know, we started to see a series of supporting measures coming out um, to support the, uh, the market. Um, so far, there have been more than 100 cities that have rolled out uh, localized the easing measures to relax the home purchase restrictions and lower the down payment ratios. And more recently, uh, the central bank PBOC and the banking regulator uh, CBIRC Jointly announced to cut the mortgage rate floor by 20 basis points. And then shortly after, the five year uh, loan prime rate, known as LPR, was also cut by 15 basis points. So, accumulatively, this uh, 35 basis point rate cut was uh, quite a meaningful move to bring down the cost of mortgage financing for the home buyers. So, I think. It just goes to show that the policymakers are committed to stabilizing the, uh, the housing market.
1: All right, so so some clear moves on behalf of the government and, and related entities, but I guess the key thing is how that shows up in the markets. You know, how have you seen some response and valuations of companies of those support measures that you've seen recently?
6: Yeah, so far we haven't really seen any kind of a policy easing measures being reflected. Um, in the bond prices or the, uh, the property sales data yet. Historically, housing policy normally leads the physical market by six m- months or so, so it is likely we're gonna have to wait for uh, another few months to, to assess, and I think that's uh, what the market is kind of uh, uh, taking the approach with as, uh, as well. S- um, but anecdotally, based on the conversation that we have with the developers, some of them are observing you know, marginally sequential improvement in recent weeks.
0: I mean, we might have seen some of these incremental improvements recently, but what are the challenges to engineering a, a complete turnaround for the sector whilst at the same time preventing the sort of outsides leverage that we saw earlier on?
6: Yes, I see three key challenges. Firstly, um, the housing demand had already plateaued. Um, before the pandemic, with national property sales hovering around 16 trillion um, RMB, and I think property sector back then was already going through structural changes with slowing urbanization and uh, declining birth rate. Secondly, um, the policy-induced uh, deleveraging that you know led to historically high default rate uh, last year in the property sector had has negatively impacted home buyers. Um, confidence and stir concerns over developers uh, project completion abilities. So I think it's imperative for the regulators um, to execute a soft landing plan uh, sooner rather than later. And lastly, um, you know, I think the traditional easing, uh, traditional piecemeal easing measures are likely to be less effective now than before considering uh, the overall home purchasing power has reduced on the back of you know rising unemployment and the the weaker economic growth in addition to that the mobility restrictions associated with you know virus control is likely to add another layer of uncertainty to the situation which could potentially prolong the sector recovery
1: you've just talked about a lot of change in the property sector we heard earlier from Yuan Lin around a lot of change in the healthcare sector. Both of you are covering companies and acting as portfolio managers. And I know you're having debates about the sectors, and a very natural downstream impact could be consolidation within those sectors. So maybe Yuan Lin, over to you first. What are you seeing in healthcare? Are you seeing consolidation? And then it'd be great to hear back from you, Ming on the same topic.
3: Healthcare, I definitely see consolidation and I see, um, you know, companies reshuffling as well. I'm not sure if that's the right word to use, but on, on one hand, you see some, you know, companies late to the transformation from generic drugs to innovation drugs may just uh, gradually um, lose the steam. And then, you know, on the other hand, I see, uh, you know, a waves of new startup companies who are... Uh, only targets on the innovation drugs, and then they are uh, rising. Um, so, you know, it, back in 2012, when I started to cover the companies, maybe, you know, I, I probably have the same companies under my coverage. If I compare 2012 and now, maybe only 10 to 20 percent are uh, still overlapping. So that shows you how rapidly the China healthcare market, uh, the industry has been changing.
6: Yes, I, I think for, for the poverty sector, the consolidation trend is where we had it um, as well. And I think uh, the SOE developers, uh, which is state-owned developers, are likely to be the clear uh, beneficiaries as market consolidators. One leading indicator that we could refer to is the land acquisition data. So year-to-day, uh, SOE developers have been the predominant players, taking up roughly of the land sales uh, sold by the local governments. So what this means is SOE developers are better positioned to gain market shares from the uh, POE developers uh, two to three years down the road.
0: Consolidation, reforms, a final question for both of you. Where do you see the silver linings in your respective sectors and what kind of companies do you think are likely to emerge as the long-term winners?
3: Yeah maybe I go first. I I think definitely you know we have been emphasizing about innovation and then I think that's a big trend for healthcare sectors. Because, you know, in the end, it, this is a high-tech industry. And then, you know, globally, we are seeing more and more investment into the R&D. So definitely, this is a big trend. And then if we look at the demographics, it is inevitable that China has to spend more on healthcare spending. And then innovation is going to address a lot of uh, problems uh, of the aging population. So I guess, you know, that's still the key word that, uh, you know, when I look at the uh, long-term winners.
6: So for property sector, um, despite all the challenges that uh, we discussed earlier, I think the silver lining is that um, um, housing demand is not likely to vanish. I think there's genuine housing demand from the first-time home buyers and the upgraders, and uh, with uh, policy headwinds turning into policy tailwinds this year, I think the uh, the sector is likely to stabilize gradually, and a stable housing sector is the key foundation for developers to get back on track and address their liquidity and debt issues. So with that, I think developers with strong balance sheet, well-managed maturity profiles, and strong access to funding will be the uh, the long-term winners.
0: Yeah, and in general, Ming, we can't ignore the fact that property still remains pretty much the backbone of, of China's economy, despite us seeing the growth and evolution of the country's capital markets. And I think throughout the conversation we've been having, really, you know, again, it comes back to the point that when investing in China, it's not just about the headline news flow. It's not just about always focusing on the headwinds. There are a lot of tailwinds that we do also need to consider. Wouldn't you agree, Marty?
1: Absolutely, I agree. And we talked a lot about macro issues, but we've also talked a lot about micro issues and and linking those two together. And for investors thinking about, well, we need to look at the big picture trends, but we also need to understand the sectors. We need to look at the companies and think about where there are opportunities. And I I think as we've just heard from Yuan, Lin, and Ming, there are silver linings and there are places where, where we can continue to invest, even with all this volatility. So really, really interesting conversation today.
0: Nothing is ever boring when it comes to China, is it?
1: <laughs> for sure.
0: So this brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you to our guests, Yunnan Long and Ming Gong, and to our other contributors, David Hoidel and Tina Tian.
1: And thank you for listening. If you want to read more about what's been covered today, please go to your local Fidelity website or fidelityinternational.com. The producers were Rory Fong and Neil Goff, with production support from Seb Morton-Clark, Tommy Su, Keith Chen, Callum Blitz... And Connor Bailey. The editor is Richard Edgar.
0: And of course, until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye.
1: Goodbye.
5: This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.